Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a sometimes fortnightly, sometimes monthly, and normally whenever we can manage it, podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. I sometimes like to do slightly fancy, and I'm doing air quotes, introductions to episodes, but this episode does not need a fancy introduction because there are going to be lots of fancy bits coming up. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hello, Peter. How are you? I'm great, I'm great. Like your implication, the podcast isn't normally full of fancy bits. Normally, no. It's it's dry, it's serious, it's just <laughs> getting to the nitty-gritty of why this game is broken. And only every so often we have our fancy bits. But not today. No, no. What are we looking at today? Today, we're going to look at some of the lore around the Forgotten Age. And really, this is inspired by our lore episode that we did for The King in Yellow, where we both sat and read some Robert Chambers short stories and talked about them. And we thought then that that would be a really nice way of kind of preparing, the setting the tone for going into the path to Carcosa. Uh, so we'd like to do something similar here. That was one of my favourite episodes we did, what, I guess over the last 12 months, was looking at the, the, the actual stories behind the game we're playing. So I've been quite excited to read up on some of the stories for this episode. Yeah, and it seemed like listeners responded really well to that. I think I went into that episode assuming everyone had read The King in Yellow and everyone would roll their eyes at what we had to say. But actually, just the fact that we were picking out bits that we liked meant that we were shining our own kind of spotlight on certain points. So yeah, we're a little bit late with this one as well. With the King in Yellow episode, we did it before the Path to Carcosa began. But I'm actually quite glad that we've delayed a little bit because it's given us a chance to get more of a sense of the direction that Matt wants to take with this campaign. And it means we can be a bit more selective with our reading and our choices and things like that. So where should we start? <laughs> um, shall I start with, with the Aztecs then, this history I've got? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. One of the books that I bought in advance of this campaign is The Aztecs 3rd Edition by Michael E. Smith, which I'm holding right now. You can hear (laughs) its weightiness. This was recommended to me by a friend of the show, uh, a listener in Australia who we affectionately refer to as Aussie Peter. You can know prizes for working out why we call him Aussie Peter. And it turns out that he's a huge... Aztec and sort of Mesoamerican history fan. And when we found out that we were going to the jungles of southern Mexico, I was trying to work out what I should read, what I should find out. And it just turns out he emailed in and, and made a suggestion. So this is a really a, it's a, an academic text and it's a sort of concise history of the Aztecs. But what's really good about it is it also talks about how you can even record the history of the Aztecs and what kind of historiographical sources there are, the context within which the Aztecs came to be a civilization, what kind of archaeological record there is. I guess it's interesting that what we would consider the Aztecs, those Central American civilizations and the, the top of South America, they were a lot more advanced than we think, weren't they? They had lots of things like advanced uh, agricultural techniques. Um, and actually, yeah. the I think it's the Mayans in particular, it was relatively recent that they, they disappeared in the, in the past kind of 600 years, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're 
you're spot on that like my I think my knowledge of Aztecs before looking at this book was largely based on a primary school Aztecs project. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the same, yeah. So I was coming into it with a lot of preconceptions and a lot of kind of naive expectations. And I knew that the Aztecs had come into contact with the conquistadors in the 16th century, but I didn't really know much about beyond that. And one of the things that really stood out to me actually was in the writing of history about the Aztecs, some of the sources are actually written by Aztec peoples, some of them in Spanish. So they've been assimilated into Spanish culture and learned Spanish, but they're actually Aztec nobles writing a history of their own people. The layers of sort of uh, ambiguity or uh, the filters through which different people have written the history of Aztecs was really striking to me. It's a really interesting area that I'd sort of assumed the history of Aztecs was all white people writing it. Yeah. And it was really interesting to see that actually there are calendar stones that give a lot of information about nobles and things like that. And then there are also these analytic style histories written by Aztec nobles in Spanish. And there are also Spanish missionaries who write histories. So they're not maybe, they're not just keen on telling the story in terms of how great the Spanish invasion was. <laughs> they're also maybe interested in that. So yeah, so it's a really like useful factual book. You mentioned agriculture. There's a section on farming systems. There's a section on pre-Aztec civilizations in, in Mexico. There's ideas about there's questions about Aztec identity, there's answers about what archaeology is like, what art history is like. There's even, which I thought was really useful, a guide to pronunciation and spelling. Oh, which fantastic. Has, it has only five entries to it, but it's really useful. So it says H, the letter H is pronounced H-W. Right. So Hua, and they've got a couple of examples. So Nahuatl is the language of the Aztecs, and it is N-A-H-U-A-T-L. And then also TL, like Estli, is there, pronounced like the English Atlas, even at the end of a word where it is unvoiced, which is good. And then the other ones, they've got uh, X, which is pronounced SH, S-H, and Qua, Quo, and Ke, and Ki. So yeah, just like actually handy to not just assume that I know how to <laughs> say these words. And we're going to probably see more cards that have uh, Nahuatl-inspired names this cycle. So that was really useful. Well, you have to coach me if they, they crop up in the game, Frank. I just, yeah, I'll just keep sending you photos of that one page. I guess I guess relevant to, to the Forgotten Age, we're in a region of Mexico now where the Aztecs weren't present, right? Yeah. So it, it's it's referred to as a city-state? Yeah. Is there, I mean, I guess, were the Aztecs further north in Mexico then? Is that what you've gathered reading the book? Yeah, exactly. The, the area that the, the Aztecs were was actually a fairly limited geographical area. And it was central Mexico, where there's a sort of fertile plain ringed by mountains, and they turn up and build these city-states that normally have a temple com complex in the centre. And what the Aztecs did was then conquer neighbouring city-states and bring them under their control. But it still all began from Tenochtitlan, which is the, the central one, which is now in Mexico City. That was the sort of starting point for the Aztecs' conquest. But generally... Mesoamerican peoples at that point organised themselves around city-states, around 
the middle of Mexico. So yeah, I'm really glad you said that about that it's a place where the Aztecs weren't because I, I'm glad I haven't read all of the Aztecs third edition history because I think we've moved quite quickly away from the Aztecs, even from that opening scenario where we've gone to a place where the Aztecs weren't. I feel like the history of that people and that culture is a really nice like backdrop to the Forgotten Age, but maybe isn't actually vital for informing the actual play that we're going to do. That said, Matt has said this is the cycle he's done the most research on so far, right? So that grounding in Aztec history, I'm sure, is going to come in useful. I hope so, yeah. I mean, if he's done even as as little as I've done and had the scales removed from his eyes about, wow, there's, there's so much out there that I just don't know about this people, that would mean that he would approach it without the stereotypical uh, Western colonialist like bullshit approach and just go, okay, there's a lot I don't know about this, so I'm going to tread carefully rather than just assume I, I can make a cliched story about this. I guess that, that brings us on to something we want to talk about alongside the stories, right? Which is yeah. the, the racism that writers like Lovecraft, well, and Lovecraft particularly, had towards Native Americans or native Central Americans. Yeah, towards non-white people, right? Yeah, Let's yeah. call a spade a spade with Lovecraft. He's he's very quick to tell you if someone has a skin colour that is not white and very quick to tell you about how they're inferior in some way. There was actually a post on the Arkham subreddit about about this issue. Mm. You know, you've got, you've got explorers, you know, typically Western explorers, going into you know, the the jungle, and then it's easy to worry that the encounter deck is just going to be native Central American people who pop out of the encounter deck and then you you slaughter them. So a few people have been worried about that issue in particular. So it's it's interesting you getting the grounding in in what's really happened there. And also us reading through the stories of how Lovecraft approached that issue, which wasn't particularly sympathetically. Yeah. And when we play the scenarios... Matt's certainly taken a more... The emphasis in, in the scenarios is more the Western people have got into this environment and have cocked things up, really, haven't they? Yeah, I I like the verb blunder. They have blundered their way in, haven't they? Yeah, exactly. I feel yes. like <laughs> any, you know, it's they've, they've sort of bumped their way into every possible awkward situation they can do. Well, and around all of this, in a way, it shouldn't need to be said, but I think that actually means that it should be said that both of us, and I, I'm sure I can speak for you on this, Peter, deplore the racism in Lovecraft, and it detracts from our reading experience of these stories, and is something that I think we both feel uncomfortable about, and we're glad that this game is an Arkham Files game that may be inspired by the lore in Lovecraft, but isn't inspired by his views. So I think I just want to lay it out there in case a listener might feel like we're hedging around it. It's it's disgusting what he's written and always detracts from what is otherwise interesting stories of horror and mystery and things like that. Yeah, and, and we're very sympathetic to people who maybe feel excluded or you know always feel like there's a barrier there between them and the enjoyment of the game because of the heritage of Lovecraft. Yeah. So, 100%. Yeah. You know, companies like Fantasy Flight Games and the other companies who are working on the Arkham Files, they've tried to do a lot of work opening the setting out, making it more inclusive, but there's always going to be that heritage there. 
And if that yeah. makes you feel uncomfortable, we're very sympathetic, and we're, we're not going to apologise for what Lovecraft did. You know, the way he wrote, it's there. We just kind of got to <laughs> accept that it's there. Yeah, accept that it's there. Call it out when yeah. we see it. You know, shout out to all the people in the community who are also very good at saying yes, it's there. It's not something we agree with. We want to be an inclusive community. That I think that's great. That's that's one of the best responses to racism in Lovecraft that you could have. So, <laughs> that said, check out these great Lovecraft stories. <laughs> <laughs> so we got a couple of pointers, didn't we, from Matt about this. You can go and listen to the end of our Path to Carcosa interview with Matt, where he gave us a couple of suggestions of sort of what was on his mood board for The Forgotten Age. And we knew that that this would feature Yig, the great old one. So the first place I went to was The Curse of Yig. Yes. And this is a great one to get a background on uh, Father Matteo as well, because he's, in The Investigators of Arkham Horror, he's the one who directly references uh, The Curse of Yig, or Yig, anyway. Yeah. This was first published in 1929 in Weird Tales, which a lot of Lovecraft's writing ended up in. And one of the things that stood out to me immediately was it's actually set in Oklahoma. And I think that stood out to me because in Eldritch Horror, the board game, when you play against Yig, sometimes you get sent to find some mound in it's the middle of the United States as opposed to down in Central America. And I always wondered why there. And of course, it's this story has the snakes of, what do you call all the people who set out westwards? The pioneers. Yeah. It's like the snakes on the plains that get in the way of pioneers who are spreading slowly westward and colonising, well, again, air quotes, colonising the western United States and rubbing shoulders with Native American peoples. And this story, it's a nice little, the way it's told is is striking to me as well, that it's a visit to a sanatorium. It's, It's a classic Lovecraft. It's told interviewing someone else and someone else is telling the story. Is it mise en abîme or mise en scene? It's one of those two. You're the literary expert. Mise en abîme. It it always strikes me reading these stories that because uh, Lovecraft's prose is so purple, whoever they're going to interview in in the story must be someone like Lovecraft (laughs) because they put in all this description. Because this story is about... He's interviewing someone who... at, At one point he says he's researched what happened and tried to piece together the facts from the night this incident happened right Mm, yeah yeah when you read it he's like putting all this description about how people were feeling and said there's no way you could have known that (laughs) in much the same way that he's an ethnographer but that's really a coded reference for i'm gonna say racist things (laughs) like it's exact it's exactly the same thing working in flip right that lovecraft's like oh yeah that that justifies me behaving in this way i'm a researcher so definitely i would write in florid prose (laughs) But the the story that's told to this man who's collecting information is about these settlers in Oklahoma. It's a husband and wife. The husband is terrified of snakes. And as they travel into Oklahoma, they hear more and more from native peoples about the dangers of angering snake or killing snakes because you'll anger the father of serpents, Yig. And the man in particular becomes obsessed with this and goes out of his way to avoid snakes, to, to to find more law about how he should avoid angering snakes. His sort of fear becomes almost paralyzing about snakes. 
and it, it's a sort of a vicious circle where he wants to find out more, but that only makes him more fearful about snakes. And then his partner becomes obsessed with almost his obsession, right? Mm. She yeah. starts fretting about his his praying and his his adherence to these folk beliefs about what you have to do to appease Yig. It all comes to a head in a classic Lovecraftian dark and stormy night. Things go wrong, and we won't. I don't think we should spoil what happens. Yeah. But needless to say, something does happen. But there's a nice little little double kicker in this story as well, that then the person who's running this asylum then takes our ethnographer narrator to see a patient of his. And I've taken a little quotation here. And wriggling flat on the floor was a loathsome, vacant-eyed thing that had been a woman, but was now only a mute, mad caricature. All that this thing could do was to hiss and hiss and hiss. Just quite jolly. Yeah, well, what I really liked about this was it emphasises Yig's personality in a way, right? That mm. Yig is obsessed with protecting its children. And that, so far, has really come across. It's one of the key themes Matt's picked up in the first two scenarios. You know, that the more snakes you kill, the worse off you are. Yeah, obsessed with protecting and so vengeful. Yeah, and I guess, like, the threat... I, I, we'll talk about this, even though it's a bit of a spoiler. The, the threat is that Yig will turn you into a snake. And there's something... Because I, I know a lot of people are afraid of snakes. Mm. Uh, I have a friend who's so afraid of snakes, she can't even look at, like, a cartoon picture of a snake. Wow. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, what about, and, and, like, a snake emoji? <laughs> no, no. Send that to oh, her goodness. at your peril. She'll 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 come for you. So a lot of people are afraid of snakes. Not me. So a lot of the talk of snakes and kind of snakes swarming over you, you know, doesn't really get to me. But this idea of being turned into an animal, there's something kind of existentially terrifying about that, you know? Yeah, I think I think so. And just just the I guess it's irony of if you've killed a lot of snakes, you turn up into a snake. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's the punishment. Not that he kills you. He renders you into the thing that you've killed. Like, tops up the numbers. Yeah, definitely. I hate the art on the Curse of Yig card. Oh, I think it's Yig's Curse card, isn't it? Where there's a guy it's lifting up his shirt. Yig. That's the name of the story. Sorry. Go on. Yeah, the story <laughs> is the Curse of Yig and the card is Yig's Curse. Famous last words. I might. They might both be... Curse of Yig. Yeah, he's lifting up his shirt, isn't he? And he's got sort of scales on his body. Yeah, makes me feel a bit creepy. Yes. Did you ever watch um, Round the Twist? I loved Round the Twist. Do you remember the one with the guy who's wearing... No, it's a woman who's always wearing gloves. I think it's a woman. Maybe it's a man. And it's because he's got three sets of fingernails oh, on God. each hand. I don't remember that. That sounds terrifying. Oh, it's great. He's always wearing gloves. I think he's a, a guy, and I think the the daughter fancies him and like goes around to his house and he lives in this like really remote house like by the seashore. I'm going to... Can I, are you happy for me to spoil this story? No, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So he always wears gloves and he finally like takes the gloves off and he's got rather than one fingernail per finger, he's got three. So they like go up his finger. Oh my God. And she like helps him clip them. But and, like oh then he stops God. coming to school and she goes to visit him and he's got even more fingernails like up his arms. And he's um, he turns into a merman. Oh, so it's scales, it's not fingers. Oh, God. And, like, yeah, he comes. she comes to visit him and he's in a wheelchair with, like, a blanket over his legs. 
because of course he doesn't have legs anymore he's got a tail and then she comes to visit him again he's like swimming in the sea I, it stayed with me so vividly like I can picture the room where she's helping him with his nails but that first image of taking the gloves off and he has three fingernails instead of one yeah the curse of Yig makes me think of that a lot of around the twist is he's really weird like that I think that one didn't but a lot of the episodes you know they're kind of nightmarish in their <laughs> in, in in their premises yeah i remember loving them but nothing else on television was like it i don't know absolutely not and I, I read quite a few books by paul jennings is it paul jennings i think is the author i don't know quick fact check yeah paul jennings is the author he wrote a lot of story like, like weird short stories and for mm. the tv series they made them all happen to one family yeah and there's a few of them like really stay with me there's one where they they have a machine that clones people or clones okay. things, and she the the daughter uses it to clone herself. But oh, nice. do they live the, in a lighthouse? They do live in a lighthouse, yeah. Yeah. And the, the the younger son is called Bronson. I remember that. Is he the one who gets his tongue stuck to the ice sculpture? Uh, yes, I think he does. <laughs> wow, so weird. What you remember of this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember the one where the elder son gets a lipstick. That makes anyone want to kiss him. Nice. And he... Oh, no. There's another one where he microwaves his underpants. And they give him <laughs> superpowers after he's microwaved them. Wow. It's loony stuff. It's loony stuff. Great. <laughs> People like weird fiction. They should check it out. Yeah. Yeah, it's properly weird fiction as well. It's not just horror fiction that's, like, a bit strange. It's it's properly weird. Yeah. <laughs> In some, Curse of Yig is a really interesting first approach to thinking about Yig and his sort of, like you said, his personality. Did you enjoy it? I did, yeah, I did. I think it, like, it's it's quite a neatly put together story. It's got this nested story within a story. There's, it, it gets on with its business, yeah. Yeah, I liked it as well. It's not really a twist at the end. It, like, quite often with these Lovecraft stories, there's a, there's a reveal towards the end, which is kind of painfully obvious. I'm thinking of The Thing on the Doorstep, Mm. Um, I don't know if you've read that, but there's a. It's not really a twist at the end. You sort of get the impression that Lovecraft thinks it's a twist. Yeah, and when it's, it, it's not a twist if it's that obvious. Yeah, but... exactly. Yeah. But I think that this this did that quite well, and it's got it's got a good idea, and it's relatively short. So yeah, I think it, it does it quite well. And that I think leads us so neatly into what felt to me like Lovecraft revisiting that story, which is another story of his called The Mound which was published in 1940, so 11 years later, in Weird Tales, and where The Curse of Yig is pretty short, pretty compact, has settled on what it wants to do in terms of storytelling. The mound is baggy and rambling and packed with discursive passages and packed with world building that's just... It feels like almost he's just written up his notes rather than tried to make it into a a story yeah this this, this is actually ghost written isn't it yes yeah, so it's it's a really interesting one so it was written with zelia bishop and she was a romance writer but there were three stories of hers that appeared in weird tales with like in collaboration with lovecraft and the curse of yig was another one of those but just the quickest of looks on wikipedia said that the extent to which Lovecraft revised her stories mean that 
they normally get included as being written by Lovecraft because he worked over them so much. But it's worth noting as well that she actually wrote a profile of Lovecraft and a profile of August Derleth. I think she was sort of at least tangentially connected with some of the kind of weird fiction scene that Lovecraft was a part of. Yeah. I'd love to know, in fact, as well, how much of the story is her idea and how much of the kind of lore that's in there is Lovecraft being like, okay, well, she's begun this story, but I'm going to now import all of my mythos ideas and sort of shove them in. It's hard to know without a lot more research. Yeah, like you, Frank, I found this... It was it was a real slog to get through it, to be honest. <laughs> there were bits of it that I really enjoyed. Like the first sort of third or so, I think, has got some... There's a section where this... Is he an ex-army guy? Goes to investigate the mound and then mm. vanishes and then... So tell us the context, What what's happening at the start okay, of the story. Okay, so, so in the mound, there is a mound... It's also in Oklahoma. It's in Oklahoma. And there are mounds like this in Oklahoma. I don't know what they are, whether they're some, some Native American burial site or something like that. I think that's what they mm-hmm. are. But there's there's a town where there's this, is it elliptical mound? A way out of the town. Um, and everyone who goes to investigate it disappears. But yeah. uh, during the day, crazy. it's guarded by the spirit of a Native American. And at night, there's a, a glowing ghost on the mound, right? Yeah. But every so every every few years, everyone forgets what happened to the last people who went to investigate it, and then someone else goes, and then they disappear as well. Yeah, it's a nice sort of reflection on how generally how kind of folklore sustains itself. He even does the years. I think that it happens. You know, in 1881, someone goes to the mound. They come back, start raving mad. Yeah. But by 1898, the new generation have grown up and what was a sort of trauma for the town has now just become a scary story to scare children. Yes. It sort of loses yeah. its it loses its factual import and just becomes, uh, yeah, sort of an old Yeah, I, I did like that as well. Because you find that with folk stories or, or like, you know, stories like this in communities come about because of some real threat that they're trying to communicate. Mm. You know, maybe someone fell in a river and died, and then there's a story about a monster in the river that will grab you if you're too close. Yeah, and then that loses its it loses its weight or its fear, and it also attracts young curious people who go, "Oh, well, is there really a monster?" And maybe that means that someone else ends up falling in the river and dying, and the story then gains a sort of second life and more strength and things like that. There's there's something at play in the mound in the early section of that, and we actually. I sent you a little bit of it that we read out in our last episode when we were talking about supplies, or two episodes ago, where the narrator of this story has arrived in Binger, Oklahoma, to go and explore the mound. He's collected these stories, and he sets off with all his tools to go and do some general... It actually is kind of like classic white man archaeology of like pootling around, chopping stuff, digging a little hole he feels that he can solve the mystery of the mound where these rural folk and these Native Americans are are too superstitious to have worked out what's really going on. Yeah. I mean, even before we get to that point, my favourite part of the story was what had happened to the procession of people who'd gone to investigate it in the past. That was all really interesting. There's a... Yeah, like I said, there's... I think he's an ex-army guy who goes to investigate it 
and then he vanishes and then he turns up a few days later without his feet yes. which is and, and, and like what like 20 years younger there's some loony stuff yeah. is he the which... same guy that dies and when he when he dies all of his organs have been <laughs> yes uh, swapped over in his body from the left hand side to the right hand side yeah that, that's um, Citus and Versus I think it's called yeah yeah I, I, just, I that, that whole thing was 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 so weird. I just loved it. <laughs> I would say that's in like the first twenty percent of the story. So you had a really long ride after that. <laughs> yes, if that was your high point, <laughs> I did. Yeah, but yeah. So, so <laughs> the thing that struck me about that part is that he he calls what's come back without feet an it, right? Mm. Is that oh th- th- this thing? But as far as I can tell, it's just a guy without any feet. <laughs> there's, there's nothing else to justify calling him <laughs> an it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, he's immediately othered it and made yeah, exactly. into a, made this man into a kind of monster. Yeah. Oh my god, he's got no feet, and they're like healed over, aren't they? Yeah, but he's got no feet. But it's not that he's got bloody stumps. That's right. In his quest to sort of prepare himself to go and excavate the mound, he also goes and speaks to various. Native American oh, oh, people nearby turns up in the Curse of Yig, right? Yeah, exactly. So I, I almost thought reading this early part of the mound that this was just Lovecraft revisiting and fleshing out a story that he's already told, and I expected this story to be a Yig-related story, partly because it was Oklahoma, it was an ethnographer or sort of researcher turning up and finding out information, and a similar thing of going and treating with the locals to actually get more information and collect law, which our narrator thinks pretty dismissively of and regards it all as superstition and things like that. And one of the things that happens when he meets these sort of Native American tribal leaders, one of them insists on giving him a pendant. And I love this because, of course, we know that you can take a useless pendant with you into the untamed wilds of the Forgotten Age. And I've got a little quotation here it was a worn but finely minted metal disc about two inches in diameter oddly figured and perforated and suspended from a leathern cord the more i looked at it the more i marveled for not only was its heavy darkish lustrous and richly mottled substance an absolutely strange metal to me but what was left of its design seemed to be of a marvelously artistic and utterly unknown workmanship he goes on to say it's definitely useless and it you know, it's I'm just taking it for superstition. But I liked it because who knows? Maybe the pendant won't be useless in in Arkham. It's definitely gonna be useless, Frank. <laughs> it even says it's useless. I don't know what you are. It's, it's true. You're expecting. It's true. So, so what so, happens when he goes into the mill? Well, he, he finds he finds lots of weird stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's oh, as far no, as what, you sorry, got. Sorry. <laughs> he, he, he finds a cylinder. Right, so yeah. I'm, I'm getting my two. St- this is a, another classic Lovecraft storytelling device. You may have started reading this thinking, right, we've actually got a story that's happening in the present, but he discovers this cylinder inside which is a, a manuscript written by um, a Spaniard. Yeah, Panfilo de Zamacona. Thank you for having that prepared. Uh, and then we, we, we jump back into someone reading a story about someone else, which is, you know, back to the classic. Lovecraft trope. Conveniently, our narrator is versed enough in Spanish, particularly the Spanish of the 16th century, that he can race back to his accommodation in 
Binger, Oklahoma, and sit up all night translating this manuscript and providing us with this pretty decent translation so he can then move into the... I, I suppose that is the like the meat of the mound, is in fact this record of a conquistador who travelled into the centre of what became the United States with a kind of Spanish army, found out from, from native people living there that there were these underground tunnels that supposedly had gold in them, and he sets off by himself to explore them. Well, this was a... And I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll bring in some of my experience of someone else who was contemporary to Lovecraft, who was a, an explorer in uh, South America and in the Amazon. A lot of people thought that based on tales told by the Spanish when they invaded, uh, you know, kind of Central and South America, that there was huge reserves of gold there. Uh, there was, is it um, El Dorado, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And yeah. the, the king yeah. of El Dorado was said to like cover himself in, in gold every day. He had like dust, gold dust, and he would cover himself in it. That's how plentiful gold was. And to the Westerners who were, were arriving there, this was, you know, they absolutely had to have it. And that expectation of gold in the New World, I think it was also enhanced. This is something that I learned reading this history of the Aztecs. If you're a conqueror of a place, you don't want to say the place I've conquered, it's the people are impoverished, it has no uh, material resources and they were really easy to beat. You want to play up the value of the place you've conquered as well. So one of the things about sort of the conquistador reports of the conquest is that they exaggerated the size of Aztec armies to make their victory seem all the more glorious and they exaggerated the, the discussion of what the wealth was so that it sounded like what they'd conquered was better, and that what that inadvertently did was set up this expectation that the new world had untold riches. Yeah. So, so there was this, uh, there's a really good book, I've mentioned this to you, Frank, called The Lost City of Zed. Mm, yeah. And, it, 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 well, there's other books about him, but it was about a European explorer called Percy Fawcett, who was obsessed with the idea that this city, Zed, existed in the jungle. And it was an advanced civilization, which was, you know, it was El Dorado. Zed was his name for El Dorado. And he, later in his life, became obsessed with this idea that the city was out there, that you could find it. There was this huge hidden civilization in the Amazon rainforest. Uh, and ultimately, he disappeared looking for it. He just vanished one of his trips. His reputation was such that, I mean, he, he, he seemed to be almost immune. He, I think he had a very strong immune system. So all the various diseases he picked up in the jungle just fought off, you know? Yeah, sweated them off. He was in the Somme as well, and he kind of walked through that without injury as well. So he was almost blessed in his ability to, to not be hurt by stuff. So people were found it hard to believe that he had disappeared into the jungle, not found anything, and just been killed by some disease or illness or something like that. Bitten by a snake. Bitten by a snake, yeah. And the other interesting character is Aguirre. Probably not saying that right, so if we've got any Spanish listeners, you can write in and tell me. But he was... There's a great story about how... Uh, he was a conquistador. Conquistador, sorry. Mm-hmm. He also went in search of El Dorado with a huge troop of people, and they vanished into the jungle for months and months and months. I don't know how long it was for and kind of came out of the jungle a few years later with almost everyone dead. Yeah. 
and there's a really good film about him by uh, Werner Herzog and that's it, it's a, it's quite a bit of a heart of darkness style story where he goes mm. he, he kind of travels up the Amazon in search of the city and his sanity fragments the further up the river he goes and he declares yeah. himself uh, I think king of the new world at some point uh, and if you want a story about jungle exploration and madness that's absolutely worth checking out I think what's interesting about both of those stories that you mention is this idea of the folly. Yes. It's not the glorious explorer that finds the thing. It's the folly of uh, essentially the white explorer going, oh yes, there's definitely this thing here and I know best and we're going to go and find it. And they've actually gone into very difficult terrain that will make that very hard. And yeah, But Panfilo de Zamacona, what he finds when he goes into the mound is not an El Dorado, but something pretty remarkable. He finds a blue litten that's Lovecraft's turn, realm called Kunyan, that's K-apostrophe-N hyphen Y-A-N, Kunyan, that is this vast plain underground in blue light, and it does have some civilization and some sort of buildings and fields and things like that. And he meets some people under there, who are immortal, can speak through minds, are able to teleport, and they're a civilization in a sort of an advanced state of decay. Because they're immortal, because they can do almost anything they want. I always find it weird with Lovecraft. He has... So, the name of Cthulhu, Mm. which is called Tulu in this story, right? Yeah. He says that's the closest approximation our our tongues can make to an alien noise right mm-hmm. but he doesn't spell it in a way that i mean if we're not pronouncing it right anyway he could write it in a way that's easier to say <laughs> yeah. it's a fun little point yeah yeah and and th- th- it's the same applies with the name of this because obviously it wasn't ever written in english so why not just write it a bit easier <laughs> to say well there's the name of the man who's looks after Panfilo, and his name is spelt G-L-L apostrophe hyphen H-T-H-A-A hyphen Y-N-N It's like, Bless you. why don't we just call him Gil, you know, or, <laughs> or in. Oh, yeah. It's a very strange, yeah, it's almost needlessly over the top. But yeah, you mentioned Tulu. So one of the things that this civilization has fallen into is a kind of excessive revering of the ancient rites and cultures that essentially they've almost fallen into that same kind of obsession with folklore that we were describing a people might fall into as some generations pass and a story stops being real and current and falls into legend. So there are statues everywhere of Yig and Tulu. So there's a, a serpent statue and a, an octopus-headed statue. And then he also mentions other gods that they worship. There's Yeb and Neb, or is it Neb and Yeg, whatever they're called. Yeah, getting them in. And there's also Sathogua, who's the spider god. And it turns out that underneath Kunyan, there's a red world, the red little world of Yoth. And underneath that is a black realm of Unkai, 
And there's a bit that I that it's, I wanted uh, to... It's hid, hidden realms all the way down, Frank. Exactly. So you thought you'd found the crazy realm, but actually it goes much deeper. And it seems at some point in the past there was conflict between the blue and red realms to do with a cult, and they ended up sealing the black realm, which in my reading of it, it's essentially like the gods came from this other place. This is where Yig and, and Cthulhu come from. I don't know if the Black Realm actually exists or if it's like space, say. But I found that fairly compelling that this idea of a differentiation of spaces of where people come from. And of course, the word Yoth leapt out at me because we have Serpent from Yoth. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And we also have a scenario coming up in the Forgotten Age that's called the Depths of Yoth. So will we be going underground? I don't know. Anyway, yeah, well, there was yeah, a cult... Yeah that was revering the Black Realm. What ended the cult was the partial exploration of the Black Realm of Unkai beneath the red-litten world of Yoth. According to the Yothic manuscripts, there was no surviving life in Unkai, but something must have happened in the eons between the days of Yoth and the coming of men to the earth, something perhaps not unconnected with the end of Yoth. Probably it had been an earthquake, opening up lower chambers of the lightless world which had been closed against the Yothic archaeologists, or perhaps some more frightful juxtaposition of energy and electrons, wholly inconceivable to any sort of vertebrate minds, had taken place. Now this, I think, is a classic example of where the mound really goes off on one, in a not particularly enjoyable way, that there's this slightly arch position assumed, which is that everything is too complicated for humans to understand, and even though this is being explained to us by Zamakona, who's being read by our narrator that's ending up with us, there's this like archness to the tone that I found pretty grating. And there's also the sense that everything is just essential. Like I said, it's like this download of information that Lovecraft's like, oh, great, I've got 6,000 words here that I can just riff on, like a, a history of you know my own world building. And it doesn't really matter whether it's actually interesting and I'll just keep reminding people that it won't make any sense to them because they're petty and tiny-minded. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't... I, like, I'm interested in the law, but I wish it was delivered in a slightly more interesting way. Well, well, well I, I guess typically Lovecraft spent... He, he, he didn't do as much of the world-building himself, did he? Mm. That, well, this is what surprised me. It kind of came later. This, and this is a real example. Unless all of this stuff is written by Bishop and he's just tidied it up, but that doesn't that doesn't chime with what we've seen that you know essentially they're ghostwritten. Like this to me is is a, an example of where Lovecraft really has made an effort at world building. But the shame is that the way he's done that is just Dumps you compare law. this to the Curse of Yig, where you get a really strong sense of Yig, and he doesn't go into pages and pages of describing Yig first came to the earth at this point. Yig lived in this place. He doesn't need to do that to still give you a sense. Yes. Despite finding the mound quite frustrating in terms of presentation and in terms of tone, I did think it was also a useful story to read. Again, for touchstones of what we might expect in the Forgotten Age. And one of the things that interested me was what these underground lands might be like. Because if we end up somewhere like Yoth, maybe that would be useful. So I've got this passage here that I thought I'd share. The downward slope of the hill itself was relatively thinly strewn with small farms and occasional temples. 
but beyond it lay an enormous plain covered like a chessboard with planted trees, irrigated by narrow canals cut from the river and threaded by wide, geometrically precise roads of gold or basalt blocks. Great silver cables borne aloft on golden pillars linked the low spreading buildings and clusters of buildings which rose here and there, and in some places one could see lines of partly ruinous pillars without cables. And it goes on and on and on, and there's temples and other things. But yeah, I thought, I thought that was interesting, that there is actually an imagined world within the mound. Yeah, yeah. I think that the setting is one of the things I really liked about it. I just think it's about maybe two or three times the length it needs to be. Yeah. But the idea itself, the central idea, is quite compelling. I, I, yeah. I, when I read it, I was reminded of... There's lots of things like that where there's an underworld lying beneath mm-hmm. yeah. the world yeah. we know, right? Um, I, I think I was talking to you. There's a, there's a section in Skyrim like that, which I, I played you know, a few years ago. And you go down through some ancient ruins and you come across this huge underworld i think it's called Blackreach. yeah yeah you can skip it out if you didn't know it was there i think maybe you have to go there as part of the main quest oh, okay but you don't have to fully explore it and I, I i seem to remember there's like huge mushrooms growing growing there and i think they give like a blue glow to the whole place so it's it's blue litten nice as uh, as lovecraft describes this place well from the the baggy to the compact there's another story that's worth checking out i think for tone more than anything else which is the nameless city this is an earlier lovecraft story it's published in 1921 and it's not set in the jungles of southern mexico it's set in arabia in a desert and it's a this solitary archaeologist who's exploring places that before this point had been sealed up and he sets off into one particular temple and it's really it's almost like a this story almost struck me as just a writing exercise for Lovecraft because it's very simple what happens he goes in it's sort of terrifying and he runs out again that's more or less it but I really liked it for this idea of the interior of of temples and architecture and given that the second scenario in the Forgotten Age the Doom of Estli has similar things going on and we think that there's going to be more temple exploration in this campaign. I thought it was a nice nice one to check out. Do you want to read us this quote, Peter? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Rich, vivid and daringly fantastic designs and pictures formed a continuous scheme of mural painting whose lines and colours were beyond description. The cases were of a strange golden wood with fronts of exquisite glass and contain the mummified forms of creatures outreaching in grotesqueness the most chaotic dreams of man. To convey any idea of these monstrosities is impossible. <laughs> they were of the reptile kind, with body lines suggesting sometimes the crocodile, sometimes the seal, but more often nothing of which either the natural naturalist or the paleontologist have, had ever heard. In size they approximated a small man, with their forelegs bore delicate and evident evidently flexible feet, curiously like human hands and fingers. But strangest of all were their heads, which presented a, a contour violating all known biological principles. To nothing can such things be well compared. In one flash I thought of comparisons as varied as the cat, the bulldog, the mythic satyr, and the human being. I like how he says, this is a, a another classic Lovecraft trope, 
he says to convey any idea of these monstrosities is impossible, and then he goes on to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love the juxtaposition of sometimes the crocodile, sometimes the seal. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's obviously, like, Frank. <laughs> are they smooth or are they scaly? Like, it's it, very confusing to me. I love this. So that it, within the city, he gets this, the, the nameless city, the nameless temple. He gets this sense of this civilization that was definitely not human. There's a part where he has to crawl to get through a tunnel. And of course, it's because these creatures moved on four limbs rather than two so they didn't need to stand up but i like it because it gives that slightly chilling sense of monstrosities of a world that we just hadn't even begun to comprehend i think less is probably more and he's probably erred on the side of more here but yeah it's still it's still nice matt gave us a few pointers when he we interviewed him at the end of the carcos the path to carcosa cycle about mm-hmm. the themes he was going for in this cycle. But uh, the most recent, as of recording, pack announcement is the City of Archives. City of Archives. Yeah. There's a striking resemblance to another Lovecraft story, The Shadow Out of Time. Is that fair to say, Frank? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's a story of body-swapping aliens and the great race of Yith. And we're really lucky that we're recording this episode a bit later because I don't think we would have included that story in a lore episode if we'd recorded this a month ago. But it's probably another one that's worth going and having a look at. I really enjoyed revisiting it. I thought it's it's I, I just feel it felt a bit tighter. I think after slogging through the mound, almost any other story feels <laughs> yeah more robust. We're really selling reading the mound, aren't we? I can't wait for all the <laughs> listener emails about how much they've enjoyed the mound. Yeah, I, I think we've, we've we've been harsh on the mound, but I, there's there's quite a lot to enjoy there. And if you're someone who enjoys that diving into the details of the mythos, then the mound, you know, there's a lot to enjoy about it. There's, there's a lot of kind of detail and, you know, timelines and dates and that kind of thing. It's just that if, if you like Lovecraft for the, the, the short, snappy horror stories, well, I don't know whether Lovecraft's ever been described as snappy. Snappy, yeah. <laughs> you know, but for me, horror is best when it has a strong central idea and doesn't spend too long on that idea. It's just long enough to explore a relatively straightforward premise mm, yeah and uh, quite my favorite lovecraft stories are like that and the curse of yig and the nameless city they're like aperitifs or carefully chosen kind of light meals and the mound is like turning up at someone's house and there's just almost unlimited food laid out but in no order or it's just like yeah have anything it's fine it's like sometimes you want to just glut yourself on on law, but other times it's a bit frustrating. There's a there's a mention in the shadow out of time to narcotic manuscripts. I was going to say this, yes. Who who are one of the so in the campaign guide for the name um, the Forgotten Age, all of the encounter sets are named on the back, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I don't think happened with the previous. No, that's ones. new. Yeah. 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 And the narcotic. Have I said that right? Narcotic, yeah. Narcotic. They're one of the encounter sets, aren't they? Yeah, the, did you say Brotherhood? With the, yeah. the Narcotic Brotherhood. Yeah, yeah. Now, Pnarcotas is the name of a city, a fictional city made up by Lovecraft, and it's also known as the City of Archives. Right, okay. 
So we're tying everything back together. Everything links together, yeah. So that, that I suppose, is another reason why you might want to check out The Shadow Out of Time. It's been a long time since I've read it, so you've obviously read it more recently, so I should I should go back and revisit that. Yeah, maybe, well, maybe as we approach that, that's the fourth Mythos pack, so maybe it's worth waiting until you get closer and then visiting it. Cool. So the overall theme of The Forgotten Age, when we spoke to Matt, was aimed to be uh, wonder and discovery, and do you think that's that's reflected in the stories we've looked at in this episode? I hope so. I think The Nameless City is actually a really great example of that, because so much of that is just descriptive text about this strange architecture. And I suppose the other underlying thing with that wonder is is that it's fearful wonder. It's not, isn't this great? It's sort of, isn't this terrifyingly wonderful? <laughs> and there's definitely a streak of that going through The Nameless City and then through the mound as well. Panfilo de Zamacona particularly, he's discovering this amazing civilization, but he's at no point really happy with them. There's certain rites and rituals that he excuses, excuses himself from, or he prays with his rosary to kind of make amends for what he's seen. So it's not purely a sort of a positive experience to interact with this highly sophisticated civilization. Yeah, I don't have anything else to add. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine, yeah. But I, I suppose with these, the nice thing about about Lovecraft is there are a range of stories and you can kind of look for what you want there. So I've yet to find a kind of one where you're they're chopping their way through the jungle, but maybe maybe the way you find that particular mood and setting is from other things you mentioned, like the Lost City of Zed, and it's worth checking those out. Or, you know, there's a is there an Indiana Jones one set in the jungle? Yeah, I mean they're all sort of jungly at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, no. Oh yeah, that's uh, right. yeah. yeah, that's the first one, isn't it? You know, he's he's in, he's in a jungle temple, and then um, Temple of Doom is yeah. also cited. To I want to say that's racist. in India, though. It is in is India, that... yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's the the kind of last days of the Raj type setting. Oh yes, yeah. Yes, also cited appropriately enough as being the most racist. Okay. Yeah, because there's a lot of because stero- they have the the feast, don't they? And they all oh, these, yes, like monkey brains, monkey brains and, yeah. and insects and live snakes and things like that. Which was a which is a stereotype in in Britain about what they ate in India, um, at these at these feasts, these kind of decadent feasts, yeah. Uh, yeah, and wasn't strictly true, but actually I think tonally that's the closest of those Indiana Jones films to what we're experiencing here. Yeah, the sort of rushing through the jungle, avoiding pitfalls and traps and things like that and and specifically that there's a cult isn't there in the temple of doom oh yes yeah uh, is it uh shiva which is the hindu god of death i think or destruction okay no it's not shiva oh maybe it is shiva no it's not destroyer of evil and the transformer that doesn't sound like what they worship i mean doom is something we get a lot of in arkham isn't it mm. yeah it, it's kali who is she is the goddess of one of the four subcategories of the Kalamaga. Oh, does it have Kalimar Shondide when he um, pulls the heart out? Tries to steal the heart out. That's yeah. right, yes. Okay. A there category of Tantric Saivism? I don't know what that is. Over time, she has been worshipped by devotional movements and Tantric sects, variously as the Divine Mother, Mother of the Universe, Adi Shakti or Adi Parashakti. Sounds lovely. Lots of arms. 
Sorry, go on. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, listener. Slightly more, well, hopefully there's something in there to check out. We've got another question from one of our Patreons. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hit me with it. G'day, Frank and Peter. Now, I'm guessing that Jared is writing from Australia by that opening, (laughs) but I could be wrong. He asks, if it wasn't Arkham Horror the card game, what would both of you be talking about together on a podcast? Something you both enjoy playing or talking about? I mean, it's it's worth saying that... Um, sorry, very good question. Thank you. Uh, it's worth saying that that we only know each other because of Arkham, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we might not have run into each other if Arkham didn't exist as a game. It's quite embarrassing when we try and talk about other things and it's just silence between us. <laughs> yeah. What do we talk about other than But Arkham? this question came at a really good time because we actually had quite a long conversation yesterday where we were talking about Netrunner and the Netrunner announcement. Yes. Because we both, in our past, played Netrunner and it's had quite an effect on us. And we have, I guess, mutual friends or, or acquaintances yeah. that, that we've met. So you've met people that I, I'm good friends with through Netrunner, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, in fact, you bought, or a friend of mine bought... Netrunner cards off you, Patrick. Patrick, I can't remember which. Oh, of course, the it was yeah. pr- some promo cards. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, we have connection through Netrunner, but obviously we couldn't do a Netrunner podcast now, I suppose. But then there's also there's so many Netrunner podcasts. There are a lot, yeah. But we also ended up yesterday talking about games in general. We were talking about Warhammer Quest, the card game, and just the game and. We were also talking about Dwarf Fortress, so I suppose we share interests in games. You tell me about what games you're playing, I tell you about games I'm playing. Yeah, and we sort of talked a bit about fiction and things like that, haven't we? Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and writing. So maybe maybe we'd find some common ground there to, to speak about on a podcast. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing about Arkham is that it is a... We're both obviously passionate about the game, but it is a self-contained thing to focus on. And we always wanted the podcast to be quite focused on like specifics of the game. So doing a specific investigator or a specific trait, whatever it is, so that it's not... The, uh, as a listener, you get a strong sense immediately of what little unit of information you're going to get in that episode. But maybe a, a bigger podcast that was just more conversations about, about games and gaming might be what we ended up doing. I don't know. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Well, I'm just imagining this the alternate timeline in which in which that's the case. Well, we talked about Drawn to the Soup as well, didn't we? And different soup recipes. The soup podcast, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's still... You kind of spoiled that for the audience, Frank, because I think that's still going to come... That, we'll get there. Well, you could say that it's on the backboard burner. It's just at, on a simmer. Yeah. And after yeah. half an hour, it'll be really nicely warmed through and ready to be enjoyed with, you know, some crusty bread or oh. something like that. Oh. Please stop. I'm hungry already. <laughs> it, actually, if people do send us questions on soup, we'd really appreciate that. Because it's hard to work it into the, the structure of the podcast we've got at the moment. Yeah. When are they going to bring out that soup spoon card that you and I oh, have both been asking for? I, I don't know, Franz. It's like survivor weapon soup spoon. Yeah, yeah. It can't come soon enough, in, in, my, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. So to sum up, send us more questions on soup. Yeah, and the ways that you can do that, we're on Facebook, we're Drawn to the Flame on Facebook, we're Drawn to the Flame on Twitter, we're also Drawn to the Flame podcast at gmail.com. In our previous episode, we mentioned another Labyrinths of Lunacy event we're doing, and emailing that email address is the way that you can find out more. You could also think about becoming a patron 
just like Madame Lebranche or Super Frank, just check out Drawn to the Flame on Patreon.com. I think we're Patreon.com forward slash Drawn to the Flame. Peter, how can people get in touch with you? I am United Everywhere, which is U-N-I-T-L-E-D. And I'm on... Oh, I've started up, I think uh, it was a few episodes ago, I said I was starting up the card of the day thread on the subreddit again, the Arkham Horror yeah. subreddit, which is great. Uh, I have done that now, and we're working through the investigators and their signature cards from the Forgotten Age. And nice. as always, there's lots of very intelligent people in those threads posting their thoughts on the cards. Um, so yeah, that's definitely worth checking out. Hopefully it's one of the reasons people come back to the subreddit and that kind of chat. Mm, yeah, I think it's a really nice daily thing. Yeah, and it, certainly I've had my points of view challenged and you know my opinion shifted on various cards based on what people have said there. Yeah, so yeah, I'm on I'm on Reddit as Unitled. I'm on Twitter and the Discord as Unitled. How about you, Frank? I'm on Twitter as FB, that's E-P-H underscore B-E-E, and I'm around the place as Zooey Glass or Zozo. Come say hi on the Discord. I think I'm Zooey Glass on there. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.